Hi, Proof listeners. Now, if you're looking for new bingeable shows, then check out Acorn TV. They stream award-winning TV series and movies from the UK, Ireland, Australia, and beyond. Now, if, like me, you like mysteries and good period costumes and sets, then be sure to check out the new season of Murdoch Mysteries. One bite of this and he fell ill? Sir, he positively keeled over. I mean, the whole contest had to be canceled. Proof listeners can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days. Just go to acorn.tv and use promo code PROOF. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code P-R-O-O-F, to get your first 30 days for free. After that, it's just $5.99 a month. One of the positive offshoots of 2020 was that people became truly curious about food. Everyone was cooking at home, often for the first time, and people wanted to know more about the ingredients that they were using. Flour certainly had its day in the limelight. People wanted to know everything about it, including where they could get their hands on some. They learned that in general, the less that wheat flour, and most grains, are processed, the more nutrients are available when eaten. Corn, however, simply dried and ground into cornmeal, is not as nutritious. It needs some help. That help is a process called nixtamalization, and it's used to turn corn into hominy for pozole and masa, which is used to make so many of the foods that we eat in abundance, like tamales, corn tortillas, and corn tortilla chips. The nixtamalization process was discovered, invented, crafted thousands of years ago. The indigenous people of that time are often uncredited for this science and overlooked for their great contributions to the food that we eat today. Well, celebrating and sharing indigenous food stories is what Andy Murphy, creator of the Toasted Sister podcast, does. She's Navajo and a food journalist in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We partnered with her for this episode about nixtamalization. Now, I'm handing over the reins to Andy. She's going to take over from here and guide you through her personal discovery and experience with nixtamalization. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. You know the drill. A friend lands a new job or a birthday sneaks up on you. And you need a gift. And you need it delivered fast. So what do you do? Well, if you want something delicious, locally made, and handcrafted, you should head to Edible's website or visit your local store. They've got so much more than just fresh fruit arrangements as well. There's all kinds of gourmet treats to choose from, like miniature New York-style cheesecakes or dark chocolate caramel popcorn. Or how about fresh-dipped chocolate strawberries? Well, Edible has something for every occasion and price point. And you can even get same-day delivery for those last-minute birthdays and other occasions. Or free next-day delivery. Visit edible.com or your local Edible store and get $10 off your order when you use the code PROOF at checkout. That's E-D-I-B-L-E dot com, offer code PROOF. Nextimalization, 
next to Malai's. It took me a minute to learn how to pronounce it correctly, but I got it. I never heard of nextimalization before I started focusing on indigenous food nearly five years ago. Nextimalization in our circle of native foodies is testament to indigenous intelligence and the erasure of our intelligence in science and global cuisine. Nobody really thinks about nextimalization because you don't see it in the taco or nacho making process. It's the step before that. It's actually a very important chemical treatment of corn that was developed by indigenous people thousands of years ago. I wanted to try it for myself because I had a jar of beautiful Hopi blue corn in my pantry. Let me tell you about this corn real quick. I bought a gallon-sized Ziploc bag full of dark blue, almost black corn from a vendor at a flea market in Loop, Arizona. That's on the Navajo Reservation. Now, I grew up on the New Mexico side of the Navajo Reservation, which is very different from the Arizona side and from Loop. If you think about the desert scenes in the Looney Tunes show about the coyote and the roadrunner, that's what Loop, Arizona looks like. It's a beautiful, reddish landscape with mesas and barely any vegetation. This desert is my home. I was on a road trip across the reservation during monsoon season to do some reporting for my podcast, and I came across this vendor who had a table full of different types of corn, melon seeds, and homemade breads and pies. The beautiful drive, the rain, and the sweet desert smell made my purchase very special. Living in this city of Albuquerque now, I don't often get to connect with growers and food entrepreneurs on the reservation, but I see their work, and I see how important their work is to this whole Native American food movement. So buying this corn was a way for me to make connections to the people, food, and the work that I focus on in the Toasted Sister podcast. The first dish I made with some of that blue corn was a turkey soup. I boiled the corn in stock for what seemed like 10 hours until the kernels bloomed a little bit. By then, the broth was gray, and the soup really didn't taste good. It didn't have a soft texture like pasole or nishjije, which is a special and delicious Navajo steamed corn soup I grew up eating. It was disappointing. Then I planted some of the kernels in my backyard, and the plants struggled and didn't yield anything before the fall. So I had nice plans for this special bag of corn, and it wasn't working out. I had already wasted a third of it at this point, so I called out to Facebook for help. I have a lot of indigenous chef friends, and I got a response. An Anishinaabe chef from Minnesota suggested I make blue corn tortillas for tacos. Being a home cook who regularly challenges myself in the kitchen, I took it upon myself to nextimalize this corn using hardwood ash, a method I've seen my chef friends use pretty often. So this is the start of my nextimalization journey and education. I asked Dave Smoke McCluskey to help me out. He's a Mohawk chef based in South Carolina who was regularly doing this process as the owner and nextimalizer of the Corn Mafia, which is a small batch corn processing company and his alter ego. Dave started by explaining what nextimalization is as a scientific process. So this process is very ancient, but it's all, it also points to, to indigenous science, if you will, and the understanding of how we change the pH and the water to nextimalize the corn, which basically it, it, that chemical reaction by raising that pH 
melts the pericarp or the outer shell of the corn off that is indigestible to humans that releases or, or makes available the vitamins and minerals that are locked in corn without that process that, that we cannot digest. Dave explained that in addition to unlocking the nutrients in the corn, nextimalization also creates a gel that helps the corn stick together and create structure in the masa dough. In the absence of gluten, that melting process also forms a weak gel and allows us to make masa, which, of course, we would not have corn chips or Fritos or any of those fun things without. Dave told me that parts of corn kernels are not digestible. That's the hulls or the outer skin of each corn kernel. In popcorn, it's the annoying little kernel shells that get stuck in your teeth for days. Nextimalization also adds a ton of flavor to corn. I do not doubt that. The thing is, nextimalization is intimidating to me. Words like alkaline solution and pH levels are not what I often think about when I'm in my own personal kitchen. So I just let that jar of Hopi corn sit in my pantry shelf for almost two years, and it tormented me. But not anymore. I got a beef birria recipe from another chef friend of mine, and I'm going to do this. I need to talk to Dave about how that hardwood ash comes into play. That process starts with me either burning wood for for ash or going to some of my friends' local barbecue places and uh, that I trust to be only burning hardwood in their in their smokers. Um, and I gather up some of that ash and I sift it and I measure it and we put it in pots of boiling water and then we add the corn. That's easy for him to say. I don't have access to hardwood ash like that, so before this journey even began, I called around to all the barbecue restaurants and asked them for the ashes from their smokers. It was kind of embarrassing. Two restaurant managers said no. Many of them didn't know what nextimalization was, and they spoke to me like I was a crazy person or up to no good. And one, I swear, she hung up on me and then disconnected the phone. Then I called one place and the manager said, sure, come by at 10 a.m. tomorrow before we throw it away. I did just that, and they had a lasagna pan full of pecan ashes ready for me at 10 a.m. When I told Dave this, he said, Here's the secret is is from me being a chef, I can walk in and I just go in and get the ash myself and, and they don't mind it. But the cooks are happy for you to come in and clean out their ash bin in their smoker. Overcoming a little bit of embarrassment and cleaning out the smokers of local barbecue restaurants is all part of the urban indigenous nextimalization process. I could have easily gone to the grocery store to buy some cal or calcium hydroxide. It comes in a white powder form and all the Mexican markets around here sell it. But I made up my mind. I'm going to do this the way indigenous Mexican ancestors did it. They invented nextimalization, and some forms of it traveled through trade routes to my ancestors in North America, where ashes and seashells and limestone are used in all steps of the corn cooking process. It's pretty genius. I mean, who would have thought that ashes would be good and healthy for you? When Europeans arrived in this continent, they saw indigenous agriculture and took what they wanted, like they took our land. They took corn back to Europe with them and found that it grew easily and abundantly. It quickly became a major part of people's diets, and it became a problem. 
a problem called pellagra. I met Ruby Orozco Santos a couple years ago, and she was a guest on the Toasted Sister podcast when I explored indigenous food in El Paso. She not only explores nextimalization in the borderland, she also writes poetry about it. I met up with Ruby again for this story, and she talked about how nextimalization prevented indigenous populations from getting pellagra. One of the characteristics of this illness is that it generates lesions in the skin, lesions in the nervous system, too, in the brain. Eventually, it causes dementia and death. And so there were a couple hundred years of pellagra outbreaks around the world where corn was used without this important recipe. And it took a while before somebody finally asked, wait a minute, why don't indigenous people get this disease? You know, why don't Mexican people get this disease? They eat corn all the time. And so nixtamalization is the reason. Pellagra is a horrible way to go. It became an epidemic. It was first identified in 1735 in Spain and remained a mystery disease. In 1914, the U.S. Surgeon General appointed Dr. Joseph Goldberger to research and investigate pellagra. And building off of Goldberger's work, researchers at the University of Wisconsin in 1937 pinpointed the cause as a vitamin B or niacin deficiency from a diet filled with mostly corn and nothing else. By that time, thousands of people throughout Europe and even the United States had succumbed to the disease. Vitamin B3 or niacin is essential for human nutrition. In untreated corn, it's molecularly attached and trapped in the plant's cell wall, therefore indigestible to humans. The alkaline solution frees niacin so that we can absorb it, while at the same time adding calcium and a couple of other beneficial vitamins and minerals. From 1907 to 1940, about 100,000 Americans died from pellagra. That's according to the National Institutes of Health. All because Europeans and then Americans didn't bother to learn about nextimalization from indigenous people. You know what else that entry about Goldberger on that National Institutes of Health page says? It says that Dr. Joseph Goldberger had a selfless devotion to relieving the suffering of those who were plagued by pellagra. His portrait is in the National Institutes of Health. The page doesn't mention indigenous people or nextimalization. They're honoring him for just barely catching up to what indigenous people already knew, that corn and nextimalization go together, and that food is vitally important to our health. Back then, no one listened to indigenous people. No one saw the value of indigenous science. Ruby sees the beauty in this process and what it says about indigenous people. Indigenous people are scientists that follow, you know, an empirical process of observation, experimentation, adapting to local and regional conditions and resources. Um, of caring and of nourishment. It tells me that there's a, a responsibility to pass on these recipes between generations to ensure that future generations can continue to thrive. I'm on the receiving end of this generational responsibility. 
The knowledge and power of nextimalization is passed on to me by way of a Mohawk chef, a handful of Facebook messages, text messages, and a Zoom call, but that's how us modern Indigenous people do in 2021. I'm about to continue this tradition and do a lot more than information exchange with a couple of folks who will help me learn more about nextimalization. Meanwhile, in my kitchen, it's hard to believe this dusty bowl of ashes is going to transform my bag of pretty blue corn into tortillas. I know the basic nextimalization process, but I have a really bad memory and I still have a little bit of anxiety about this. I should circle back around to Dave. So, what do I do next, corn boss? I gather up some of that ash and I sift it and I measure it and we put it in pots of boiling water and then we add the corn too. And you see this kind of vibrant color change. So white corn will turn if, if the process is, is working perfectly and I have the right pH balance of the water. The, the white kernels of corn turn a bright school bus yellow or orangish almost. So I got the hardwood ashes. I have equal parts ash and corn ready. It's about two and a half cups. And I have a big pot and ladles and spoons at the ready. Mise en place is the first step. And Dave told me the second step is to bring about a gallon of water to boil and let the ashes boil and dissolve for about 10 minutes. Did that. It's kind of thick. And step three, boiling the corn in the thick ash water for an hour. I thought it was going to take a huge, giant pot. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to stick the recorder in there and you can hear what nixtamization sounds like. Here we go. It's um, corn just kind of rolling around in a pot in a bunch of, um, you know, it looks like concrete. <laughs> corn swirling around into some concrete. This is the sound of nextimalization. It's a, it's a mix of, um, you know, the black from the corn and, you know, gray and brown, you know, gray and brown are like swirling together. It looks like a, it looks cool. It looks pretty. And the swirling together like, like paint or something. It's a fascinating process. As I'm stirring and observing, I'm thinking about our ancestors. These could be the same sights and sounds they would have been observing thousands of years ago. To get a better understanding of nextimalization's origins in Mexico, I spoke with Neftali Duran. Neftali is a cook in Holyoke, Massachusetts. He's also Mixtec and originally from Oaxaca. For me, it's really easy to imagine that if people started domesticating to simply 10,000 years ago and stopped traveling from place to place, in pursuit of game and foraging, gathering, to become more agricultural-based, I can only imagine that at some point they started culinary traditions, including nestamalizations. And now we're, you know, in 2021, we also have a lot of science that is catching up to what we knew all along. 
With the development of agriculture, people were able to live in one place and focus more on food and the arts. Cooking utensils like clay pots and kamals were made, and the scientists in the community were able to observe and experiment. Agriculture laid the groundwork for nextimalization to be invented. Notice how I use the word scientists. Science and indigenous people are not something you see often in the same sentence in academia. There's a reason for that. Westerners, colonizers, had the privilege to write history and science books. To talk more about indigenous science and erasure of indigenous people in science, I called up Dr. Kyle White. He's sort of my go-to person when I have questions about climate change or environmental issues in Native America. Bonjour, everybody. My name is Kyle White, and I'm Potawatomi, and I teach at the University of Michigan. Dr. White is a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, a group created with a goal to help address current and historical environmental injustices. Indigenous science is that knowledge of, of what it means to, to live well and to take care of that others that you're related to live well too. So why isn't, um, you know, indigenous science, why isn't any of this knowledge taught in Western science or mentioned in Western science? I never heard about it when I was uh, going through high school and college. There's a lot of really painful reasons. So, you know, indigenous people say in the North American context, each tribe, uh, each community, each nation had its own scientific practices that they developed for hundreds and hundreds of years. White colonizers saw sustainable agriculture and healthy game and fish populations, an abundance created by indigenous science. And instead of wanting to collaborate with indigenous people on equal terms and learn how we can be stronger together, they decided to treat it not as science at all and to take advantage of what they found. And so Europeans stole a lot of indigenous knowledge about plants, uh, about animals, about other aspects of the environment. Landing in a new place and taking authority is how European settlers built this dominant society. In their colonization process, they inserted their belief that they are the inventors of science and only their science can exist. And so they created educational systems and research institutions and other support for the production of knowledge that reflected this peculiar idea that all knowledge is, is like bare and brute information. And so they created this idea, and some people call it the ivory tower, um, that somehow those people who have knowledge are separate from everybody else and are not accountable to anybody else. That is not the way of indigenous science. As humans, we are not the ultimate all-knowing being. We're stewards and lifelong students and caretakers of plants and animals. I didn't learn about indigenous science, history, or politics in my public school education. You most likely didn't either. I find it kind of insulting that I had to go to college, pay tuition, and take American Indian studies as a minor to learn about my own history. In college, I got really angry learning about all the atrocities that indigenous people went through. And I think many native college students go through that kind of anger. I let it fuel the work I do every day as a journalist, but I can see how that anger can get out of control and get really heavy. 
It hits different when you learn that that historical trauma trickled all the way down to your personal experiences of poverty, discrimination, and disconnection. So part of that assimilation process included wiping away thousands of years of culinary knowledge. That's why I don't have close ties to that part of my Navajo heritage and food. That's why I've been on this culinary journey. I've been exploring the delicious revitalization of indigenous food over the last four and a half years and slowly learning how to bring these indigenous foods with a contemporary flair into my own kitchen. After the break, Andy returns to the kitchen with her newfound knowledge. While we've all been itching to go outside and feeling cooped up, if you will, the hens at Pete and Jerry's Organics have been living a life of freedom. They've been roaming around in open pastures, foraging for delicious grasshoppers and grubs, and munching on organic feed. This lifestyle and a good diet makes their eggs the highest quality in the egg aisle. Pete and Jerry's Organic eggs have tall, firm yolks with a deep golden hue and creamy texture. Perfect for use for a comforting egg drop soup or an old-fashioned vanilla frozen custard. Just like those hens, let your imagination roam free about your next recipe using Pete and Jerry's organic eggs. Believe in what you buy. Pete and Jerry's organic eggs are available nationwide at a fine grocer near you. The folks at OXO go to great lengths to make sure that their products are tested thoroughly. Take the Conical Burr coffee grinder. OXO turned a conference room into a desert just to tackle the static electricity that was causing coffee grinds to stick to earlier versions. Here's senior product engineer Mac Moore. Static is something that we wanted to fix, and we sealed up a conference room with tape and foam around all the gaps, and we brought in a a heavy-duty dehumidifier and brought the temperature up and the humidity down, so it's just like your house in the middle of the winter when you get zapped every time you walk across the floor. That was what we needed to do to push the grinder to the limits. Rigorously tested coffee grinders, less static, and so much more. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better guaranteed. Hey there, Proof listeners. It's Bridget here. And I've got a real craving for mangoes lately. So I called on my Test Kitchen colleague, Carmen Dongo, to see if she can point me to some exciting new recipes. Hey, Carmen. Hey, Bridget. So what do you have for me? Well, here's some delicious options. You can have them no matter what season or time of year. First up, mango mint salsa. This salsa is fresh and delicious, combining sweet mango, tart lime juice, and spicy minced jalapeno. Oh, this sounds so good because it's going to heat you up and cool you down at the same time. That's right. (laughs) Next up, we have amkilasi, also known as mango yogurt drink. Our recipe uses a pinch of salt and squeezed lime to perk up the flavors of the mango. Perfect. I could drink that by the gallon. Mm-hmm. And finally, we have Middle Eastern pickled mango. Did you know mangoes can be fermented? Ooh, tell me more. This process will both preserve the mangoes and add a little pucker to it. It's great to eat on its own, or you can use it to make a pickled mango sauce called amba. 
which can be used on seafood, kebabs, and even eggs. Nutritious and delicious. Go to mango.org slash proof for tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. And now, back to Andy. So, back in my kitchen. Nextimalizing corn is a long process, but it's an easy one. After I boiled the corn and ash for an hour, I let it soak for about five hours, and then I strained it in a colander. Dave said to rinse it once to preserve some of that natural sticky glue that formed around each kernel in the process. I don't know where the blue color went, but I'm looking at a whole bunch of brown and deep brown and black corn here. I wonder if I did it right. <laughs> it is gritty on the bottom. When I stick my hands in here, you can see all of the hull or the, the skin of the corn. It's all sticking to my, to my hands. So that's, I guess that's how you can tell that the nextimization process is, has worked. Remember I'm making tortillas? Well, the next step is grinding the corn. I heard you can do it with a meat grinder and luckily I have one that I never took out of the box. Kind of an impulse buyer of kitchen things here. As a woman, traditionally, I'd be grinding this corn on a stone. It's a lot of hard work. All of this culinary work is hard, and you know, much of it was our work, women's work. We run this mother. Neftali also had thoughts on women's work. There is no culture as we know it without indigenous women. We know and we can only imagine the, the arts, the crafts, culinary traditions, nixtamalization is born with women in the, in the kitchen through observation, through planting of the corn, through harvesting, uh, all of that, the world owes to indigenous women of, of, of the Americas. Ruby, the poet, recalls a conversation about the importance of women that she had with folks at the border. The same women who I interviewed about the corn, you know, we're eating this delicious corn and we're talking about how amazing this tradition is, and at the same time they're having to deal with you know, looking for lawyers to help a relative who's in a detention center, you know. And it harkens back to other indigenous women who had to practice these traditions in, in the midst of, um, of state violence and colonialism. Corn and indigenous people have an inseparable history and existence. Through trade routes that traveled from its origins in Mexico to many North American tribes where each community molded its DNA to their needs, their land, and their identities. Emiliano Marentes, one of the owners and the chef of a Lemi restaurant in El Paso, talks about this relationship and honors that at his restaurant. I wanted to go back to the to the source of where corn came from to see you know and experience um, what it's like to work with that corn from that region there's a ton of varieties uh, you know, like bolita is from oaxaca you know you got conico from estado de mexico uh, pero pecha which is from puebla um, so there's different varieties of corn uh, cacahuacintle 
which is used for pozole. There's just so many. Um, here we do focus a lot on the blue corn. Alemi is making waves in the restaurant scene in El Paso because they actually nextimalize corn and make tortillas on site. It's a lot of added time and steps to making tacos, but it's important for Emiliano and his wife, Crystal. I believe it's extremely important uh, for us here, especially in a border community. I would say it's our line back to our roots because sadly, no one really does that anymore, even in this border community, even in Mexico, you know, tortillas use maseca as well. Since they opened their restaurant in 2019, El Pasoans and visitors have been receptive to this process and the statement they're making and the homage they're paying to Mexican food origins. With delicious tacos, they're celebrating Mexican and indigenous Mexican people and supporting the food producers on both sides of the border. For Crystal Morentes, witnessing her husband go through this long process of nextimalizing corn was a learning experience. Just the the work that it took and and how, you know, beautiful it is in all honesty. It's a beautiful process. And, you know, I know that there is a saying that says, you know, we are from, you know, we are children of the corn, you know, Corn is our sacred mother, and I, I couldn't agree with that more. It's, it's really, really opened my eyes to everything. It is beautiful, and it's beautiful on this side, too. In my kitchen, I have ground and nextimalized corn. I add a little salt and water, and each half handful of this mixture turns into masa dough and I squeeze it together. It smells great. I see and feel the beauty everyone's talking about right here in my hand. This is a product of modern-day indigenous trade routes. I'm a Navajo woman. I got this corn from a Hopi lady. I learned about nextimalization from a Mohawk guy, and I got the birria recipe from a Pueblo chef. This revitalization of indigenous foodways, both in a traditional sense and a modern sense, is often called the indigenous food sovereignty movement, or the Native American food movement. Folks across Native America are doing this kind of work by focusing on their specific tribe's food, or by connecting with ingredients, flavors, and people from other tribes and regions, like I'm doing here with tortillas and this style of nextimalization. It's all in the name of honoring ancestral scientists and women who held on to these seeds and recipes with tight fists in the face of colonization and making sure we have connections to the food that's ours. Ruby recalls how her grandmother connected to food through song and conversation. She would marvel at the foods and start improvising poetry to describe the foods, to express gratitude for the foods, to tell the foods, you know, thank you. Uh, she would also sing to the plants, right, when she would water them. That's an that's a ancestral practice of singing and saying poetry. You know, poetry is intertwined with food traditions. When we plant, there might be songs for planting when we cook when we grind, you know, so depending on the community and their traditions, it's something that goes together that is part of the culture, the relationship, the acknowledgement of, uh, of nature and of the, you know, the elements that help us live. 
poetry, art, spirituality, flavor, memories, strength, hardship, science. These things can't be separated from food. That's what everyone I talked to said. There's a poem called Calcium Hydroxide in Ruby's book of nextimalization poetry, Inventos Mios, that really encompasses the different perspectives that non-Indigenous scientists and academics have on food and science. And if you're listening with kids, just a heads up that Ruby's poem deals with some adult themes. Calcium Hydroxide I'm writing about Nixtamal, I say. White man at the table is first to speak, eagerly lists chemical reactions, molds periodic table into steel speculum, inserts cold metal up my grandmother's skirt. I nod politely, a survival strategy imprinted in every cell for at least four generations. Fight, flight, or nod for your life. I guard my jeweled kernels deep in las tripas with this silence. These seeds are not for you. These poems may or may not be for you. You see, despite my sea and chemistry, I connect with, listen to, percussive seeds arriving, pouring, cascading into colander. I observe these relatives rinsing their bumpy, wet bodies activating, greeting back this human relation, this caregiver, life-taker, lineage-insurer. Back in my kitchen, the bumpy, wet corn kernels have been ground and mixed into masa dough balls. Each dough ball goes into a tortilla press. It's kind of thick and won't get as thin as I'd like, but that's okay. Dave and Neftali told me that the first ones will always be weird and thick. I can dig that. Maybe if it's still hot and it's a little bit pliable. Nope, it cracked. Cracked right in half. <laughs> okay. Let me taste it, though. Mmm. Oh, goodness. Okay. So that is delicious. <laughs> I think I added just the right amount of salt to it, too. You know what? I'm going to eat it like a, um, like a sope. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to do that. Even though it's thick. <laughs> Even though they're not going to bend, I'm, I'm just going to do that. Because I don't have any other tortillas right now for my, for my tacos. Okay. So let's make another tortilla. Oh, goodness. <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for all day. Making tortillas and tacos took over nine hours, but it's a worthwhile experience. In some ways, it took thousands of years. I think everyone should have an experience like this. It makes you more appreciative of a taco and the history and science behind it. It's difficult to not see the people and stories ingrained in a tortilla once you've learned about nextimalization and once you've done it. 
And I'm just talking about nextimalization and corn here. I could go on about potatoes, tomatoes, chili, chocolate, beans, squash, quinoa, and many, many more foods that have origins in indigenous communities in Mexico and Central and South America. Much of the world's cuisine actually has roots in the indigenous Americas, but indigenous people never get credit for that. So my indigenous chef and farmer friends and I will be here because we've always been here and we're not going anywhere. And we'll be here to remind you that the food you eat has more science, history, and poetry to it than just good flavor. Thanks to Andy Murphy for reporting this story. Go check out Andy's Toasted Sister podcast for more fascinating stories about indigenous culture and food. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. Hey, and while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is our senior producer. Caroline Rickard is our producer. Terrence Johnson is our associate producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Jack Bishop is Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Pete and Jerry's, Acorn TV, OXO, The Mango Board, Edible, and Sitka Salmon Shares. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 